Would you stand with us as we begin our service with prayer? George, would you kindly lead the congregation? morning. Will you take your red hymnal this morning, the Trinity, and turn to number 34. 34 in the red. Thank you. 
deal. Three, two, seven, three hundred and twenty-seven. Okay. <coughs> All right. Three, two, seven in the red. <coughs> three, two, seven. In the red. In the red.
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. That'll be in your pew Bible, page 1875. Can you come to that? Please stand with us. Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac all your offspring shall be named. He considered that God was able to, able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We take your red hymnal again and turn to 631, 631 in the Trinity.
Our scripture text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and following. In our, service, in our series, Living by Faith, providentially, I say providentially, we coordinate with Father's Day. I didn't plan that, but just working through this particular uh, series of messages that came out on Father's Day that I would be speaking about faithful fathers. So that's providence, and I like that when God does things like that. It sets before us the need to love our parents who believe God and who obey his precepts. Our Lord, we come to thee today, and we thank thee for the privilege that we have of studying your word. It is a privilege. In places all over the world today, there are those that are longing to know what God has to say for their lives. They have no Bibles, hardly any scripture whatsoever. They're under persecution. They're meeting in the woods. They're meeting in caves. We know that to be the case because scripture says that. And then we hear from our missionary people that such goes on in these countries. We don't know what we have here in America with freedom of speech and freedom of worship both founded on the principles of the first amendment but we know that men can take away things that are found in writings and so we are a blessed nation that you keep us free in this most basic of all freedoms bless your word today and honor the Lord Jesus Christ who is our savior and the Lord of glory in whose name we pray amen We're looking at the subject today of faithful fathers and primarily talking about Abraham. Abraham had a beginning faith. Beginning. Verse 8. By faith Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance obeyed and went even though He did not know where he was going. I am amazed every time I read that verse. When taken within the historical record of Genesis, it's absolutely startling and revealing. Let me read you context. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham 
was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Chapter 11, verse 31 following. Ur of the Chaldees and Haran are located geographically in the very region today known as Iraq. We learn from history that this was the Fertile Crescent. It became the Empire of Babylon and later the Empire of the Persian Empire. It was, it was a land populated with pagan idolaters. Abraham's family was no exception. Joshua tells us, as the people were about to enter the promised land, Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abram, and Nahor, his brother, lived beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout, throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants, and I gave him Isaac. Joshua 24, verse 2 and 3. Abraham's father was an idolater, Tira. So was his brother, Nahor and Haran, his other brother, who was father to Lot, and died while yet in Ur, according to Genesis 11, verse 28. This family, under Tira's leadership, traveled as far as Haran, a town named after the son who died, and there Tira himself died, leaving Abraham, Sarah, and his nephew Lot. It is from this point that Abraham is finally in compliance with God's command, leave your country, your people, your father's household. There is a sense, however, in which Abraham's family left him. How so? They died. God is, when he says something that is to be done, it's going to be done one way or the other. Abraham did not leave his family in Ur of the Chaldees, took them all with him. But they were idolaters, and God was not about to bring them into the land of Canaan. Canaan was for Abraham and his descendants. But God got his way. Yet despite this slight hiccup, Abraham is credited by the author of Hebrews. Listen, by faith Abraham, when called to go out to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Wow, we read that. Maybe shake our heads a little bit. You, you really mean that, Lord? He, he obeyed? And when? God says, yes, I mean it. Think about this. Abraham is part of the idolatrous pagan family. He has no history of hearing the voice of God. There is no record of a previous encounter. There is 
no predisposition to Jehovah, no experience, no knowledge of God, just a calling by God, either by vision or dream, with instructions. And the instructions were as vague as could be. Go to a land I will show you. Oh yeah, right, okay. Go to a land I will show you. Genesis 12, verse 1. Our text, verse 8, gives the interpretation. He did not know where he was going. Duh, of course not. Go to a land that I'll show you. And he didn't know where he was going to go. Who does something as irresponsible as this? Men of faith, yes. But what's the nature of faith? Let me read it for you from the scriptures. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2. Faith is being sure and being certain of what to us is our hope, our assurance, ESV says, even though we don't see it with our physical eyes. Observe the etymological change in the English word hope. Today, if we say something to someone like, well, I hope to be able to attend family conference next year. We view that as a wish, but kind of uncertain, right? I mean, I'd like to go. I'm planning on going, but I'm not sure I'll make it. The Bible doesn't use the word hope in that way. In fact, the Bible uses the word hope in the direct opposite way as that which is definite or certain. Listen to Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given. Romans 5, the first five verses. It's a different way the Bible uses the word hope. Now back a little bit here to Tira's family. Joshua, writing under inspiration of God, said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Tira, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, that's the Euphrates, and worshipped other gods. But, I took your father Abraham from the land. 
I love it. Abraham was likely an idolater too, but notice the contrast referred to in the text. Your forefathers, Tira, Nahor, worshipped other gods, but I took your father, Abraham, from the land and led him. God took him. God led him. And if we place, excuse me, peace, if we piece the whole scenario together, it runs like this. God called him, God took him, God led him, and God promised him, chapter 12 of Genesis, he's going to become a great nation, and God gave him many descendants. Joshua 24, verse 13. Verse 3, excuse me. God had done it all. God did it all. And Abraham simply responded in faith to what God had done, not only for him, but in him. Men are not born with faith. Faith in God. They are born with unbelief. God in his calling makes the call effectual. He makes it irresistible. They come because they believe. They believe because they are assured in their own mind's faith that they cannot see God apart from his intervention. And his intervention is true and real and fully trustworthy. The idea that seeing is believing, we hear that expression all the time, is not the definition of faith. Not seeing, yet believing, is faith. And that is why this faith pleases God. Verse 6. Abraham did not see God, but he believed him when he spoke. His contemporaries, like our own, likely labeled him a nutcase. You're leaving your country. You're leaving your family. Yes. Why are you leaving? God told me to. Which God? The God who made promises to me. Where are you going? I don't know. How will you know when you get there? God will show me. Brethren, this seems so lightheaded, so irrational. This is rare, isn't it? This is why the writer says, this is what the ancients were commended for. It's not the normal way men make decisions and do things 
And yet I say it is the most rational thing in the world to believe God the Creator when He speaks. What is irrational is to view God as a liar like men and just as untrustworthy or to deny that He exists altogether. To trust God for the unknown is not the same as saying God doesn't know. God does know. And that is why it is reasonable to trust him when he speaks. He knows what men do not know. He knows what is yet mystery to men. He shares some of what he knows with those who trust him. What he yet keeps secret to himself still sits well with us because we don't have to know all to know truly. We know in part, and that's okay because the part we know is a real and genuine element of the whole, of God's knowledge. Praise the Lord that God shares us his knowledge. But not for most men, not for sinners. I ain't got to know it all. And if I can't figure it out, it doesn't exist. In other words, they're saying, I need to be God. The world knows in part, as well as us, but often they assert that they know when they're just guessing. I was reminded of this some time ago when through the Hubble telescope, which is the most powerful we've been able to create, they looked at a valley on Mars which they labeled as being once a very big lake. That must be a big lake. And of course, I know where they're going. Water's needed for life. Uh They want to probe the dry bottom to that lake, which they call a lake, to look for microorganisms as proof that Mars could and likely did Sustain at one point, maybe six billion years ago, some forms of life. Evolutionists keep looking for life in all the wrong places because they work on a godless premise. For them, the truth will always elude them because they have no faith in God, its creator, the creator who, verse 3, formed at his command the universe so that what is seen was not out, out made out of what was visible. Matter, matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. God precedes matter. And matter is the result of God's creative energy and not as science so-called probably more science fiction suggests that matter is 
self-generating, that life comes from non-life, which is nonsense. Think of it. I wonder sometimes who's the loony bird here. The sinful heart does not believe God, and because of that, what it believes is often irrational. It doesn't compute. Where did life come from, Mr. Evolutionist? Well, there were these little cells. Were they alive? No, no. It was just matter. And then one day, it came to life. And this little cell grew into something big. Oh, so you're saying that life came from non-life. Yes. Is that still happening? We don't see it, but it probably is. Has it ever been exemplified in creation as you know it? That life comes from non-life? Well, no. But we know it's happening because here we are. That's circular reasoning, which is not reasoning at all. Some years back, I read an article. I could already believe this. The APA, EPA, excuse me, reported that it was considering taxing all farmers. Are you sitting down? You hold the seat in front of you. Taxing all farmers $75 per head of cattle because the cows were belching too much methane gas into the atmosphere and methane gas captures the Earth's heat and is contributing to global warming. They want the ranchers to switch from corn feed to alfalfa and flax feed, which produces less methane. They plan to force compliance through taxation One loony theory, methane-belching cows used as evidence to support the equally loony theory of global warming, which will eventually destroy us. Did you know, folks, that the cows are out to get you?
Oh, there is a warming that's going to destroy us, however. It's the one that's recorded in the scripture. It's God and his arsenal. Let me read it for you. Second Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promises, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Second Peter 3, 10-13. Abraham was not the first man to believe God, but in his own case, faith began with God's call, and every believer in this room can say the same of their own faith. One day, no faith. Next day, faith. One time, skepticism with cynicism mixed in. Next time, trust and confidence in all that God tells us in his word. Faithful fathers are not always faithful. Their faith began with God's intervention. So Abraham began with faith, but he had a present faith. That is to say, it went on. Let me read it for you. By faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 9. By faith he lived. By faith he lived. That's what it says. Paul put it this way, I thank God every time I remember you being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 3 and following. So, beginning faith moved Abraham from his homeland and pagan country, men and family, to the promised land. But beginning faith becomes faith for the present. It's faith to live for God, which includes growth in his faith. And the structure of his life is such a way as to obey God in day-to-day living. People born anew of God don't suddenly know how to trust God in every and all details of life. But we grow. Think about it. How often did our Lord chide his own 12 disciples saying, Oh, you of little faith. What's the problem with you guys? You got little faith. In the case of Judas, it turned out to be no faith. But for Peter and James and John and all the rest, little faith became bigger and bolder until we find these men defying the religious authorities who tried to silence their witness of the gospel through physical persecution. You can read about it in Acts chapter 5. We'll shut you up. No, you won't. Yes, we will. 
We will persecute you. We will beat you. We will flog you with an inch of your life. We will throw you into prisons. We will deprive you of necessities of life. Do your worst. And every time they released the apostles, the scripture says they went back out into the square and continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The testimony of the people in the book of Hebrews was theirs as well. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you so we say with confidence the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid what man can do to me and remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith imitate their faith Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 5. Confident faith lives life not with a reliance upon bank accounts and stock portfolios and 401ks, but with the realization, the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. I think we modern believers sometimes think it is easy for the impoverished and the needy to have faith in God because, I mean, after all, they do not have much in terms of resources. So we think, oh, well, of course they have faith. Who else would they turn to? We have a lot of biblical data to substantiate poor people trusting God the widow of Zarephath, the woman who donated her last two copper coins to the temple treasury, etc., etc. It goes on and on. But here's my question. Are we, the well-off, exempt from the requirements of God to live by faith simply because we have the financial wherewithal to buy anything that we need, even things that we want? I admit there's a great temptation here, but we're called upon to live by faith as well. King David put it this way, Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope, says David, is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. Selah. Think about that. Yeah, that's a good thing to think about. You're just a breath to God. Here today, gone tomorrow. Solomon, David's son, learned the lesson. 
He says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. Or wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 13 and 5. Brethren, the sin is not the sin is not possessing great wealth, but trusting in it. Trusting in it. That's a misplaced faith. The psalmist put it this way: Why should I fear when evil evil days come, when wicked Deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their great riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is costly. So payment is never is ever enough that he should live on forever and not See decay. He's saying you can't buy your way past decay. Past death and decay. You can't buy your way past that. He goes on, for all can see that wise men die. Wise men die. The foolish and the senseless alike perish and they leave their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever, their dwellings for endless generations. Though they had many lands named after themselves, but man, despite his riches, does not endure. He's like the beasts that perish. This is the fate of those who trust in themselves. Like sheep, they are destined for the grave. The upright will rule over them in the morning. Their forms will decay in the grave, far from their princely mansions. But while but God will redeem my life from the grave. Far from their princely, excuse me, from the grave, he will surely take me to himself. Think about that, Selah. Think about that. He goes on, do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him 
when he dies. So while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generations of his fathers and will never see the light of life. Wow. Psalm 49, verse 5 and 4. Okay, that brings us to Abram. What of Abraham? Well, his servant was sent to Laban to find a bride for Isaac. We read, The Lord blessed my master Isaac. This is servant speaking. Abundantly. And he has become wealthy. He has given him sheep and cattle, silver, gold, maid servants, men servants, and camels and donkeys. Genesis 13. My master's wife Sarah has borne him a son in her old age. And he has given him everything he owns. And my master made him swear on oath and said, You must not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live and go to my father's family and to my own clan and get a wife for my son there. Genesis 24, verse 35. Abraham had the money, he had the money to buy property, to acquire deeds, to name lands after himself, to build mansions, to plant gardens, to set his roots deep in the soil of the world's playground. But our text says, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. No permanent housing, no plush palace in the heights for all to see, and for him to peruse the rolling hills of the estate. In short, his trust was not in riches but in God, and he lived in possession of his money instead of the money possessing him. He taught his sons and grandson to live the same way. And they did. They did. They all lived in tents with their faith fixed on God's promise. And that brings us to the concept that they had a future faith. Future faith. What do I mean by that? They looked into the future and it was the thing that controlled their life in the present. Verse 10 says, He was looking forward, here you go, forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them 
from a distance. Not physical sight, by the way, but the sight of faith. Seeing by believing. And, I'm reading on, they admitted that they were aliens, strangers on earth. And the author says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country. A heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. He's saying they didn't put their roots down in this world. They lived in this world, but they weren't of this world. They were just implants. And when they died, God took them out of this world to their home. They did not live for the present day wealth that the world can supply. We read from the New Testament writings. Paul told Timothy, command those who are rich in this pleasant excuse me, this present world not to be arrogant not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. That's the only safe object of faith. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as firm foundation in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. This was Abraham. And this is the people of faith in every age. And then finally, consider the fact that this is miraculous faith. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, ESV says she received power to conceive, was able to become, Abraham was able to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Verse 11, verse 12. Romans 4, text says, Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his bone body was 
as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, yeah, he was 99, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yeah, she was age 90, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded, hey, God had made the promise, he will do what he has promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 18 and 5. In short, Abraham and Sarah believed for the impossible because with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 26, said Jesus. And what happened when the miracle child, Isaac, was born? Their faith developed even more into an unflinching faith. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac in a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, Oh, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, Oh, that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead verse 17 through 19 Hebrews 11 that's unflinching faith go to a mountain that I will show you take your son with you and there I want you to sacrifice him on an altar for me A person of faith can give back to God what God has given him and do so gladly. Abraham did not think of God as, oh, you're going back on your word. But rather he believed that God would simply, oh, you'll just have to raise Isaac from the dead to keep your word. Can you see this kind of faith? I'll kill him, Lord, just like you want me to do, and I'll offer him on the offering, on the altar. But then you're just going to have to raise him back to life because you have promised that through Isaac, his numbers are going to be counted. My heritage is going to be through him. Boy, that's really taking God at his word, isn't it? You said it. You said through Isaac. Abraham did not think, oh my, I must have misunderstood God about, about Isaac. Maybe I missed something in this promise about my heir. No, he didn't go down those roads. Or doubt. Or suspicion. No, he simply thought, God made me a promise. God will keep it. 
My task is to obey what he tells me. So he took the boy to Mount Moriah, fully prepared to sacrifice him to God. God arrested his hand, holding the knife, saying, Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Genesis 22, verse 12. Brethren, that's mature faith. That's grown-up, adult faith. Faith resulting from years of trusting God and knowing that God always keeps His Word. That's unflinching faith. Now, what do we learn? Well, number one, we learn that little faith can trust God. Little faith. When Abraham began his pilgrimage, he didn't exactly start out on the right foot. He took his nephew Lot with him, who proved to be greedy, self-centered, disobedient. Lot hogged the whole Jordan Valley for himself, pitched his tent towards the wicked city of Sodom, which was later defeated in battle. Lot had to be rescued, which Abraham gladly did. Lot went right back to Sodom until God destroyed the city by fire. And Abraham had to plead for Lot's life. God delivered him two times from Abraham's intervention. The disciples of Jesus began as men of little faith, you remember. But they became men who turned the world upside down. Acts 17, verse 6, affirming as they did, we trust, we, excuse me, we must obey God rather than men. That's what they told the Pharisees. Pharisees came out and said, you guys can't preach anymore. We don't want to hear any more of this gospel, this Jesus stuff. We must obey God rather than you. Solomon put it this way, the wicked man flees, though no one is pursuing him. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Proverbs 28, verse 1. Faith can grow, it can mature, as it did with Abraham. And faltering faith can become strong. On two separate occasions, Abraham messed up as a husband. Once before Pharaoh and again before King Abimelech. Abraham, by his own admission, said that the reason he said that Sarah was his sister was because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. What? Genesis 26, verse 9. Well, yeah, I mean, she's a looker. Wow, she's so beautiful. When Pharaoh sees her, he's going to want her for his wife. And to do that, he's going to kill me. Say you're my sister. Which, by the way, was true. She was his half-sister. But a half-lie is a whole, I mean, a half-truth is a whole lie. Got him into <laughs> worlds of trouble. He had not reason 
that he was the object of God's promise, that a nation was in his loins, that a child of promise was coming through Sarah, that God had promised to make his name great in all of the earth and blessing all people. You know, sometimes, folks, fathers in the faith aren't very faithful. We're seen to have feet of clay. We break under pressure. We say and do sinful things. And in those times, faith-filled wives like Sarah and faith-filled sons, as Isaac, must be forgiving and allow for faith to become stronger through the failures and behavior and lessons learned. Jesus put it this way, for in the same way, as you judge others, you will be judging with the measure which you you use it will be measured out to you. Matthew 7, verse 2. And then finally, tested and tried faith can take you to conclusions no one else can see. Tested and tried faith can let you see things no one else sees. I know that trials can break men. That's true. But what I want you to see this morning is that trials can make men. They can. They can make men of faith. God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac is a worst-case scenario. His son, his only son, the son of his future legacy. Yet, what did Abraham see in this event? Isaac, being no dummy, said to his father, Dad, we have wood. We have fire. Where's the sacrifice to be offered? And Abraham responded, The Lord will provide. even contemplating the possibility that God will allow him to go all the way and actually slay Isaac, Abraham concluded God could raise the dead. Verse 19. Not only that he could, but that he would. This is tenacious faith. It's faith that believes God against all odds. It's faith that believes the impossible. It's outrageous faith. God put your faith in mind to the test as fathers, as mothers, as wives, as husbands, as children, as singles, so that by the shield of faith we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Ephesians 6, verse 16. And take our stand against the devil and the forces of hell. One night in a private garden setting on a hillside, Outside of Jerusalem, Jesus met with 11 of his disciples and asked them to pray with him, but they could not. The scriptures tells us they were exhausted from sorrow. Luke wrote that, Luke 22, verse 45. They were exhausted from sorrow. So Jesus prayed alone and by himself in anguish of soul and sweating great drops of blood. His faith was on trial and he prayed, Father, if you're willing, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He was talking about the cross and crucifixion. And an angel from heaven 
appeared and strengthened him. Luke 22, verse 42 and 43. What a bleak hour. What what a dreadful darkness. Jesus' faith in God's purpose was on trial. He's being tested to the max, but God sent him angels to strengthen him. What was the outcome? Paul tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. This word scorning in the Greek is powerful. It's kata fro Kata meaning down and fro to think or to contemplate. Thus, to think down, think it down, play it down, minimize it, count it as nothing significant. What? Count the shame insignificant compared to the results. The shame of the cross, the death of a naked criminal at the hand. of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of the day. Hebrews 12, verse 2, the tested faith of Christ became strength in faith and faith that could look at the cross and see things in it that no one else could see in it, the joy of becoming the Savior of his people, the victory of ascension being seated at the right hand of God over all of his enemies, victory on those wooden beams, not defeat. And the devil's power of death broken and the salvation of all who believe secured now and forevermore. May God allow your faith to see beyond your trial, beyond your trial, to Christ triumphant. Christ triumphant. Our Father, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus, for his tenacious trek to the cross. He wouldn't be deterred. I remember the disciples tried to convince him, don't go to Jerusalem. You know, those guys up there are waiting for you. They got their spears ready. They got their swords ready. They're going to kill you. You can't go to Jerusalem. It's not safe. But the scripture says you fixed your eyes upon Jerusalem. You were looking at the cross and you were looking at death, but you were looking at what it would accomplish for the sake of your people. And all we can say this morning, dear Lord Jesus, is thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our that you didn't cave to irrational, sinful thinking. You kept the Father's plan and you saved your people. 
may we be thankful this day. And if we don't know you, today's the day to come to know you. To be so appreciative of you as Savior. May we plead with you and ask you to become our Savior. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 570. when you find number 570 in the Trinity. Thank you.
Our God, we do have a great heritage. We look into the scriptures and we see these men of faith, these women of faith, children of faith. That's our heritage. We're not alone. We stand in the great circle of friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we rejoice. And we're not a little group. We are a multitude. The revelation says that no one could count. No one can count. Like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky, no one can count. There's so many. We think we're little. We think we're insignificant. We're not. We're the apple of God's eye. Praise you, Lord. We're going to have a great family, a large family, and glory. And we want to be part of it. For any here that would like to know Christ, may they simply ask Him to come into their life today that they might know Him and might have the hope of future, future glory. Oh Lord, save whom you will and strengthen us in our faith who are we're already Christians. But we get weak and we get uh, sidetracked in pursuits that we ought not to be involved in. And we need your grace and we need you to pull us back on track. And we thank you for that. But you don't let us go. We're like that lost one sheep. You go out and you leave the 99 until you find us and you bring us back home. Bring us home, Lord, and we'll praise you for it. We thank you for your tenacious love that you don't let us go. That Satan is bound for the destruction and defeat. And we're thankful for that. May the earth be conscious of the fact there is a God in the heavens and they will one day have to face him face to face. The scripture says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body. That's us. That's everybody. All means all. I pray, Lord, that we will have the advocate, the lawyer, pleading our case, whose name is Jesus Christ, and whose name we pray. Amen. We are dismissed. Thank you.